Well, we take our scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Matthew 27 is our text. In Matthew 27, we come to what is really the very heart of the Christian message. Our text this morning describes the death of Jesus Christ. The passage after that talks about His burial, which, Lord willing, we will look at next Lord's Day. And then after Christmas, we will look at the next paragraph, which talks about His resurrection. Now, if if you're not a Christian, it may be that talking about the death of the founder of your religion as the heart of your message sounds like foolishness. But I want to tell you that this was a death like no other. And this passage reveals that. This was a death that was like no other. Not just that it was sort of quantitatively different, as if, you know, we're just talking about Jesus' death being different because he he faced death more bravely than the rest of us. But no, his death is qualitatively, substantively different and unique. It is truly a death like no other in all of history. And what we've seen is that Jesus claims to be God's promised Messiah King, deliverer of His people from sin and death. His promises, His his claims that He was the Son of God were summarily rejected by the leadership of His people, the Jewish people, in His day. They rejected His claims really without much of any attempt, really without any attempt to get at the truth. In fact, his um, trials were not so much a pursuit of justice, but a pretext to push him on to the Roman trial where the Jews would coordinate with the Romans to make sure that this person, Jesus from Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross. That was their intent. and. That, in fact, is exactly what happened because it was God's intent at work behind all of this sinful human machinations. And Jesus went to that cross deliberately and purposefully and died a death like no other. And this text describes that death. Beginning in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, if you take a look at the text with me. Verse 54, I'm sorry, verse um, 45 is what I mean, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and filled a sponge, took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. This was a death like no other. And it is described as a death that was accompanied by several things. This first paragraph describes those things. Verses 45 to 50, the things that accompanied the death of Christ. In the first place, His death was accompanied by an unnatural darkness. The Bible says that this unnatural darkness came over the land from around the sixth hour, which if you're reckoning by the day beginning at 6 a.m. or around 6 a.m. and sunrise, that puts you around noon. So from around noon until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. our time. So for three hours, during what would normally have been the brightest part of the day, that whole area was plunged into an eerie, foreboding, unearthly darkness. It had to be one of the strangest days that ever occurred in the land of Israel. There are some people who think that, well, maybe it was the result of a solar eclipse, right? You know how the sun is blocked, the light of the sun blocked by the moon or the shadow of the earth. And, of course, that theory is, if you take the Scriptures seriously, that theory is uh, doesn't hold water. For one thing, because uh, an eclipse will usually last a few minutes. This lasted for three hours. And besides that, this uh, occurred, as all of the Gospels tell us, at the time of Passover, which happens at a full moon. Uh, during which um, you cannot have an eclipse. So this is not a uh, this is this is this is a divine darkness. I don't know exactly what mechanism that God used, if He used any earthly mechanism to bring this about, but it was a sign from God. Make no mistake. It was predicted almost eight hundred years earlier. God prophesied through one of His prophets by the name of Amos about the end of the Jewish nation and the destruction of her temple, her temple worship. Here's what Amos wrote. 
all those years before. In Amos chapter 8, verse 2, the end has come upon my people Israel. Foreseeing this future, he says, the Lord says about his people, I will never again pass them by, pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day. This is God's final judgment on Israel. And, of course, the people of Israel destroyed their true temple. They tore it down. The Lord Jesus Himself and Jesus Christ predicted and prophesied the destruction of their earthly temple within that generation as an act of God's judgment upon them. Verse 8, Amos says, Shall not the land tremble on this account? And then in verse 9, he says, On that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? He says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the mourning for an only son. And that end like a bitter day. And so now here it is. The death of God's only son. And the land went dark. But I think there, I know that there's more going on here than just God's displeasure at the sins of the people who rejected his son. There's more going on here. And the clue is the timing of this crucifixion. As I mentioned, that every gospel recounts that his crucifixion took place at Passover. Now you remember, if you are very read in the Bible, that the book of Exodus describes that the origins of this tradition, this um, feast that the Jews had, the feast of Passover. It goes back to the ancient deliverance that God effected for His people Israel to bring them out of slavery in Egypt during the time of Moses when God brought judgment on all of the sin of Egypt by killing all the firstborn sons. That night was a night of terror it was a night of weeping. It was a night of judgment. And it was a night when God Himself steps in to bring righteous judgment on a sinful people. And in that night, the Lord instructed His people, believing people, to take a lamb and to kill that lamb as a substitute for their firstborn. And to take the blood from that lamb and to put it on their door. And when the angel of God's judgment saw the blood, he would, as it were, pass over that home. Well, when God orchestrated that event, 15 centuries before Christ, when God orchestrated that event exactly how He did, He did so with the crucifixion of His Son in mind. And so he instructed Moses in the ninth plague in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, to stretch out your hand, Moses, toward heaven, that there may be darkness over all the land of Egypt. Darkness. 
a darkness so thick, it's like a darkness that can be felt. And so the Bible records that Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. That's how awful and dark and eerie it was. Totally incapacitated the mightiest nation on earth in pitch darkness for three days. And in the midst of that supernatural darkness, at midnight, the darkest of the dark, God sent the angel of death to judge the sins of the people. And now here, here, all of that judgment of God on sinfulness is compressed, as it were, from three days down into three hours. And all of the horror of hell was compressed and fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who stands in the stead of sinners, And like the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament so that the people would be passed over in the judgment of God, Christ Jesus was sacrificed so that believers today can escape from the righteous judgment of God upon their sins. God sacrificed His firstborn so that He might bring many sons into glory. And just like those who believed God in those ancient days of Israel had to take that blood and to put it upon their homes, it is true that only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, listen, only those who believe and by and through that faith have that blood of Jesus Christ as it were applied to them covering their sin and their guilt. Only those people, only believing people, will be saved in the day of God's judgment and wrath against our sin. How else can you account for your sins in the day of judgment? And so, I admonish you to believe and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no other hope You have no other means of being right with God and being delivered from His wrath. He is a just God. There is not a sin that will go unpunished. Not one. Every last sin will be judged. You Don't fool yourself in a made-up God of your own imagination who will just be nice to everybody in a way that just sort of undermines any kind of real justice and, and just pretend like everybody's okay, or at least people who try hard, they're, they're okay, and just overlook all of their wrongdoing and their rebellion against Him and the ways that they've violated their conscience and broken His law and lived apart from Him. God will not overlook those things. Every last sin will be judged. This is why the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness. Those people understood that in the ancient days of Israel. 
And here now, we're reading about the sacrifice to which all former sacrifices were pointing. Look, behold, look, look, the Lamb of God. He's crucified for you, sinner. For you who've lived your life so far apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of your sins, He is hanging on the tree. If you will put your trust and faith in Him, confess your sins and call out to God for mercy, for the sake of Jesus Christ, His blood may be applied to you and you may be passed over in the day of God's judgment because there was the Lamb of God hanging there in the darkness of that hour for you and for me. But even more astounding than the darkness, I think, is this secondly, that Jesus Christ's death was accompanied by a divine abandonment. You can see it in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, so this is after three hours, and I can hardly, I I just can't, I I know I can't do it justice to even think about these three hours or to communicate the horrors of those hours. All of hell compressed and laid upon the shoulders of Christ. And at the end of that, about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, saying in, in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These have got to be some of the most mysterious and profound words in all the Bible. I mean, you hardly know what to do with them. God estranged from God. My God, cries the Son of God, why have you forsaken me? This is not by any means to diminish the deity of Christ or to divide in any way the essence of the Trinity. This is not to separate somehow Christ's human nature from His divine person. And further, it's not a cry of faithless despair. He's still crying out, My God! You are my God! Even yet, in the midst of this incredible suffering, for which He had no guilt at all, totally unjustified suffering, humanly speaking, It's not evidence that Christ was somehow an unwilling participant in this. He laid down His own life. He said it Himself, I have the power to lay down my life. He set His face to Jerusalem knowing that it would mean the cross. This is in no means to say any of those things, but it is certainly a cry of desperation. It is an echo of the 22nd Psalm. In that Psalm, the inspired writer who is also a prophet, looking forward, speaking forward about the sufferings of the Messiah, wrote these words, these ancient words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? 
from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This, of course, is the same psalm we read last week in our Scripture reading that speaks of his hands and feet being pierced and of his garments which were separated by the casting of lots among the soldiers. All of this spoken of so far before. This is a cry of torment and anguish at the loss of the sense of communion with God, with the Father, which is, I I want to tell you this, which is what the Son of God loves more than anything else in all the world. That He loves the Father, and the Father the Son. And all of His life He had lived, and all of his, His being He had enjoyed the communion with God, the fellowship with the Father, the approval of the Father, mutual love expressed between them in the Spirit for all of eternity and eternity and eternity. And now He is cut off from that. We can't even imagine because we are so sinful. We're, we're used to our communion with God being, being so fragile and, and, and we're so dulled as to live almost in a spiritual slumber that is only occasionally awakened by a, a heightened time of revival in our lives that we cannot even begin to imagine the perfect communion of Father and Son being somehow brought to a rift because of the sin which the Son of God was bearing in His own body as He hung on the cross. I can't think of any more description, any description of uh, of a vain hope, void of hope, than the description that someone is God-forsaken utterly and completely abandoned in that moment by the very one who he aimed to please more than anything else for reasons that were humanly inexplicable. But the reason is really the heart of the Christian message. The reason why the Son of God experienced this rift with his Father is at the heart of the Christian message. Here it is, that Christ was abandoned in our place so that we might be accepted in His. That is the Gospel. Christ was abandoned in our place by the Father so that we might be accepted in His. He was tormented for our sins so that we might be eternally blessed because of His obedience. It's very clear that sin separates us from God. We talked about that earlier in the service. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says that your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And listen to me, listen to me. Your sins and my sins by nature will separate you from God. Have separated you from God. So that by nature you stand alienated from God. 
an enemy of God, under the righteous wrath of God for all of your sins, Your sin, my sin, separates us from God. But here's why Christ was abandoned by God. It was not on account of His own sins, but on account of the sins which He bore for His people. Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is one of the most beautiful texts in all of the Bible. He was pierced for what? Our... Say it again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That is the heart of the Gospel. Christ in our place. Can you imagine being cut off from everything good? Imagine being cut off from everything wholesome. From everything kind. From all gentleness. From all that is truthful, or beautiful, or pleasant, or uplifting from God, who is the fountain of all of that. This is what the Son of God suffered. And imagine experiencing only, in that moment, the wages of sin, the pain and suffering and torment and brokenness and ruin and judgment from a holy God against every deviate kind of wickedness that his people ever committed. And you just have to stop and think about the sins that God has forgiven in Christ. The murders that God has forgiven. The uh, sexual sins that God has wiped away. The theft, the envy. All of this born by the Son of God. The full and complete just measure of the wrath of God against sin. I want to tell you this morning, you can only escape the consequences of your sin against a holy God through the Savior, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross in that darkness, in the place of sinners, forsaken and abandoned by God under His judgment. Thirdly, on a human level, Christ's death was accompanied by misunderstanding. Human misunderstanding. Jesus cried out from the cross, we read it in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, which is my God, El, E-L is the word for God. Here we get the word Elohim, is a plural of majesty, plural, speaking of the triune God. And uh, the little I is... Um, a way to talk about my God. But the people who were standing there listening to him thought perhaps that he was calling out for Elijah to come and rescue him. And of course, the Bible spoke about an end time Elijah coming, right? And maybe Elijah will come and rescue him, they say. 
this mishearing of Jesus' words might be understandable, acceptable, excusable, except for the fact that it is really in the Gospels a part of this ongoing pattern that you see that until the Lord really awakens sinners, they hear only what they want to hear. Um, This is the way people responded to so many things Jesus said. He spoke about giving the bread of life and they came to Him for a free meal the next day. He spoke about pouring out for them living water. And the woman said, good, because I don't have to come back to this well every day. He spoke about being born again. And he was answered with a question of whether he needed to crawl back into his mother's womb. To unbelieving Jews, he said, where I am going, you cannot come. And they said, are you going to go kill yourself? When he said, I will rebuild the temple of God in three days, I will raise it up again, they accused him of insurrection. Over and over again, I'm telling you, it is so easy, listen, it is so easy for those who disregard Christ to pay little enough attention so that they misunderstand what he has to say. This is happening the world around right now. People who are disregarding of Christ, who pay him only enough attention to misunderstand what he's really saying. You know what that is, right? To pay somebody just enough attention in a conversation your mind is is, is lapsing into something else where, where, where you don't quite follow what they're saying. This is, the, this is like the way that, that the whole world is living apart from the awakening grace of God to open the ears that are stopped, right? And this is surely happening among all of those people who were putting Him to death. And then finally what we see is that out of their misunderstanding, um, the bystanders taunted him with faithless mocking. The other Gospels record that after ta- making this statement about God forsaking him in Aramaic, then, then he says, I'm thirsty. And so one of the people there, a particularly compassionate person perhaps, he runs and grabs him a jug of the sour wine, the cheap wine perhaps that the Roman soldiers were drinking and carried it up and dunked a sponge in it, put it on a stick to to go hold it up to the cross and and the people around him say, hey, wait, 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 let's first see if Elijah rescues him. Remember Elijah got the birds to come feed him when he was in the wilderness. Let's see if Elijah will take care of him. He's calling out for Elijah. This is a continued... Example of Matthew's um, inspired preoccupation with the mocking of the crowds around the Lord Jesus, which demonstrates the utter hostility of sinful men, that we by nature are enemies of God, and it demonstrates the unimaginable humility of the Son of God to endure mocking from mere men when he could have called 12 legions of angels to wipe them off the face of the earth. But he stayed on that cross because it was his his intent to fulfill the will of God to provide salvation in a way that glorifies 
the triune God. And so, here for three hours, Christ experienced this unnatural darkness, this clouding from view of the good favor of God upon him, the abandonment and from his own father, the excruciating pain that he bore in his body, and more the moral and spiritual torment, um, suffering for the guilt and the sins and the shame of his people, enduring the misunderstanding and the mocking of men at his apparent impotence and and self-delusion. For three hours he endured. He writhed under all of that. I just This is just beyond what we will ever comprehend, I believe. Even in eternity, as our glorified selves, we will, I think the appreciation for this will grow on us every year that passes by. But Christ, in the end, met all of this with trusting willing submission to His Father. In the face of the darkness and the abandonment and the misunderstanding and the mocking, here's what He met it with. Submission. Willing, trusting submission to God. And you see it in verse 50, the way He died. The Bible says that He cried out with a loud voice and what? Yielded up His Spirit. This is an unusual way to say it. I at least have to say that. This is not any of the normal words for somebody dying. And Luke, in fact, is even more explicit because he tells us what the cry was, that loud cry. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, he released his spirit into the hands of the one who for three hours was pouring out wrath on him. But with faith and trust and love, he committed himself to God. This is amazing to me. He had only ever pleased his father. But as Isaiah said, it pleased the father to crush him so that he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? And yet, with his last breath, last breath, he says, Into your hands I give myself. I put myself in your hands, Father. Astounding! I mean, how many people do you know? How many conversations have you had with somebody who said, You know, I used to believe in God. I used to go to church. But God let all kinds of bad things happen in my life. God, I, I saw some real injustice. Some great evils were done. And, and I just can't believe in a God like that anymore. If that's the way God is, I just I don't trust Him. I don't believe Him. You can have Him fine. But look at the Son of God who was the recipient of all of this wrath from his father, and in the end, left his life in the father's hands in absolute trusting, yielding obedience. This is the ultimate act of obedience. That is the capstone 
of an entire life of obedience. So we talk about the active obedience of Christ all of his life, and here he is in this great act of passive obedience whereby he lays his life down in obedience to God the Father. What kind of righteousness is this? It's the kind of righteousness that you and I have failed to have. It's the kind of life that we should have lived but didn't. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible says that his one act of obedience leads to justification and life for all who are united to him in faith. Are you, I ask you this morning, are you united to Jesus Christ by faith? Have you come to a point of acknowledgement that your sins deserve that kind of judgment from God? And that you know, you feel that your only hope is in the one who suffered in your place. And called out to him and said, Oh Lord, I'm a great sinner. Please save me for the sake of Jesus Christ. I repent of my sin. Oh Lord, have mercy on me and save me from your wrath. Have you ever come to that point in your life? Oh, I tell you, if you have, it's like, it's like, uh, it's being born again, isn't it? It's new life, it's opened eyes, it's, it's breathing air for the first time. Oh, may God cause one of you to be born again this morning in the hearing of this gospel. This was a death like no other, and as you might expect, the death of Jesus Christ produced several incredible effects. And very quickly, this is in the second paragraph, which runs from verses 51 to 54, we see first of all that when Jesus Christ died, that the temple, which he was so infamous for speaking about, that temple was opened up to human view for the first time ever. This was an amazing thing. Look at verse 51. When Jesus died, here's what God did. Verse 51, behold, it's like, it's like Matthew has to stop telling the story and he says, look! That was loud. Look at this. Look. In the temple, there is this curtain. It, it was said to be a hand's breadth thick, 60 feet high. This is a big temple in those days. Right? There were different versions of it in history, but this is a, this is a large scale building. Massive. And this curtain was amazing. It was wove an incredibly thickly woven tapestry. And here's what the Bible says, that it was torn, verse 51, in two. From the top to the bottom. What, what in the world is going on? Except that God Himself is giving a sign. No human being on earth was allowed to go behind that curtain, except one man, the high priest, and only one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, bringing an animal's blood to sprinkle on that altar to cover up the place where the law was, so that humanity would not be judged for its law-breaking, or the people of Israel would not be judged for their law-breaking. And here it was now at the ninth hour, Matthew says, which Josephus tells us was the, the time of day when the evening sacrifice was being prepared to be offered. 
And so the temple would be filled with priests, and all of a sudden, as Christ is dying outside, just, just not far away, outside the city gates, the temple curtain is just ripped open. I'm sure those guys never forgot that day. And maybe that lies behind what the Bible says in Acts chapter 6 about how many of those Jewish priests in the early days became Christians. This was an amazing sign from God. And Hebrews, that we read this morning in our Scripture reading, makes the significance explicit in chapters 9 and 10 that it was the body of Jesus Christ, listen, the body of Jesus Christ being ripped open that at the same time the barrier between God and men in the temple was being ripped open and torn apart to show that it is only through Jesus Christ and through the death of Christ that we can have access to God, access to heaven, access to life, access to eternity, access to immortality and joy in the presence of God. There is no other way to go in. Nobody else can go in. Every other sinner dies in the process of getting close to God until Christ Jesus makes a way for you. Amen? Only through Christ. Secondly, when Jesus Christ died, there was this effect, that the just like the curtain was torn in verse 51, the Bible says that the earth shook, there was an earthquake, and the rocks themselves were split open. This is actually the same word for the temple's curtain being ripped. The rocks were ripped. The whole, the whole earth was ripped open. The temple was opened, and now the earth and the tombs of those who had died with faith in God and God's Messiah, they were broken open. I've been to Israel. I've seen those rocky tombs, some of them carved into rock and rocks, big heavy boulders placed around them. Sometimes a boulder rolled in front, and and these rocks begin to crumble, and the boulder falls down, and, and the mountain shakes, and the tombs are laying open. And then the Bible says that something truly miraculous happened. That after Jesus' resurrection, three days in the tomb, He was raised. That at Jesus' resurrection, many Old Testament believers were raised to life. Their bodies were literally given new life. And they came out of their tomb. And they went into Jerusalem and they appeared to different people. And what was that like? I only wish I could have read some of those accounts. Who did they appear to? How long? What was it like? Did they talk? Were they raised like Lazarus back to, restored back to an earthly life that perished again? Or were they perhaps more likely raised in resurrection bodies. Perhaps they ascended with Christ into heaven at His ascension. This is a truly amazing account. And it is the demonstration that the death of Jesus Christ was unlike any other in all of human history, that it was a death that conquered death itself. 
because it was the death of the only truly righteous person in the entirety of human history. A death that undid death itself. So that the tombs were open and the dead came to life. It was, really friends, it was a foretaste of what will happen to all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, those who believe in me, though they were dead, yet shall they... Yeah. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when He comes. That is the hope of all those who die in Christ. This is why we bury our dead, not without hope, not with tears of everlasting sorrow, but with confidence and joy at the resurrection of the body to inhabit a new heavens and a new earth and eternal fellowship and communion with God that's never, ever broken. That's the hope. That's what we were made for, brothers, sisters, friends. That is what we were made for, and that is what will happen only through the death of Christ. Truly, His was a death like no other. And finally, not only were the temple opened and the tombs were opened, but eyes were opened. This was a truly amazing conversion that took place. It apparently was a kind of mass conversion. The Bible says that the Roman centurion, and he is the one who voiced this, as the other Gospels make explicit, but apparently, as Matthew says, that the whole guard seemed to share this same sentiment as they saw Christ die, as they listened to all of the things that He said on the cross, as they saw all these signs happening, they said, the centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. And in that moment, friends, his eyes were opened to see what so many around him just couldn't see at all. And my prayer has been all this week that today, in this sermon, that the Lord would be so gracious as to use it to open the eyes of someone who hears today. That you would see for the first time what the Gospel really is. That Christianity is not just about trying to be a better person, be nice to your neighbor, or going through certain rituals. Christianity is about Christ. It's about glorying in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone who is worthy of our praise. It's about worshiping the only one who could possibly save us by His substitutionary death in our place. I pray that your eyes would be open. I pray that you would see the Lamb of God slain for you who suffered the wrath of God in your place and for your sins. That your eyes would be opened up to the ways of God, the resurrection and eternal life with Him in His presence with great joy. I want to ask you this this morning. Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Son of God? The Son of God, your Savior. God Himself slain for His enemies. Have you come to acknowledge your sins and to confess them and that He died for you? I tell you what, He died a death like no other in all of human history so that you might live a life both now and forever in the joy of the presence of your God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, now in this moment, In this Lord's Supper, we are earnestly 
asking you to restore and renew our faith in Christ and that the eyes of any who is not a Christian, unconverted, that they would be opened this morning, that they would cry out to you for the first time a prayer of true faith. We're asking you to save them from your own wrath through the death of your Son. On account of His righteousness, Lord, please save those who put their faith and trust in Him. We ask that you would give the gift of faith of repentance of sin. You would break down every idol that is standing in the way of Jesus. That every hearer here today would be brought to a place of conviction that Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We pray it in His name. Amen.